Could get okay. myself slanty. Okay, slanting. That's good. Yeah, birthday, birthday. Hello and welcome to episode <laughs> 17. Oh, 18. 18. 18. Oh, for baby Jesus. Um, yeah, birthday. Wow. Today's the 31st of January. Yep. Which is the, so the very for... date we recorded the first ever episode of um, the podcast. So it's all planned. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I don't have anything that makes party noises around me. But, um, I, can, I can edit these things in. Yeah. Thank you to our thousands of listeners. Well, uh, for the huge, we do have about one thousand four hundred listeners, which is pretty good. Wow, that's great. It's pretty that's good great. for our first year. You know, the Tetsu Media Empire is is on the up. That's um, awesome. So yeah, we should look back at what what amazing things we've achieved during the year. Um, and to be honest, I've forgotten everything, but I've got a list of the podcasts here. Um, the first episode, the prequel, um, bit of a shaky start, maybe. I think we got uh, into our, um, I think we got into our stride pretty quickly. Well, if you, if, if you, given that the podcast is basically random chatter about any old crap, then, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> yeah, we done, so we've done good there. Yep. <laughs> yep. High five. High five. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's back when we were still trying to, you know, have a structure and and um, and do little segments yes. from the Tetrapod yes. Zoology blog, and uh, I think some of that worked pretty well, and some of it didn't work so well. I think maybe doing stuff that was just straight from the blog, although I think it's good to mention the blog. Lots of people said that, you know, they were reading Tetrapod Zoology, the blog, anyway. They didn't sort of want a recap of the whole thing, did they? Um, no, I think it should be seen as a kind of like addendum or extra notes or something to stuff on the blog sometimes when there's other stuff worth saying. But yeah. we don't want to we don't want to run through. Uh, um, yeah, each each article in turn. That's that's stupid. Who would ever think of doing a thing like that? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Stupid last year, John and Darren. Stupid last year, John and Darren. Uh, so that's so that's episode one. <laughs> that's episode one and two, pretty much. I think and two. Oh, we had our first listener question in. Um, in uh, episode two, which was Androsarchus versus Arctodus. Oh, yes, which of course fight? is yes. how topical is that because of the whole this, the we'll go through this stuff on Facebook later, but the, the carnivora forum joke that's yeah. very relevant to that. I'll come back to that maybe. I don't know about the carnivora forum, so oh, I should look this we'll, up. We'll, yeah, we'll yeah. come back to it. I'll come back to it. Okay, and um, we did our first like proper big special episode, episode three, featuring the features Bigfoot's feet. Mm, mm, which yeah. I think is still, if you haven't, if new listeners haven't gone back and listened to the early episodes, I think that's a good one to listen to, because I think we were um, fairly organised. Um, we had a couple of practice runs in episode one or two, so I think I think that's a good one to listen to. It's the best early episode, wouldn't you think? I think so, and I think it's actually some without being arrogant at all, it's also some valuable content in terms of what we discuss. The fact that people do want to hear that stuff, they maybe haven't heard it before. So Yeah, um, and it was and, actually pre-researched and stuff, which is uh, unusual. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Bigfoot, Sasquatch is one of those things that doesn't really go away. I mean, I, 
it's on my mind a lot because for some bizarre reason I currently watch the TV series Finding Bigfoot, which is hilarious. And you should watch it; it's brilliant. Um, I should watch it. Renee, we should talk about it. Like at some point. we should talk about. It. I want to talk about it. But there's a yeah. character, there's a there's a person called Renee who's awesome. But the other guys, the other people on it, they're like, um, well, they don't come across too well, to be honest. They say some really hilarious stuff. Um, and and um, I can't remember why, but the other day I, I can remember why it was a comment somebody asked on Tetzoo. Someone asked about how can you, given your what you say about Bigfoot in the Cryptozoologicon, how can you dismiss the evidence for Sasquatch Bigfoot tracks? And um, based in part on the research that we did for that podcast, and based in based in part on other you know things found out about anyway, I thought it was a good opportunity to just say, you know, back in the day we had. Grover Krantz and we've still got people like Jeff Meldrum and so on, but people saying that there's this compelling biological reality evident from the tracks. It's like, well, no, as we discussed in that episode, it's all in episode three. We don't want to repeat it again, but all these bits of evidence that people have put forward to support the validity of Bigfoot, um, they've all fallen away. Dermal ridges, the the so-called midfoot break, the uh, and all that, all that stuff, yeah, and the, and the, the well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to repeat myself, so I'll stop there. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. Yes. Well, I think that's sort of been a theme over the last year. Big theme of over the last year has been cryptozoology. I mean, I think that's partly because we've been working on the cryptozoologicon, so it's been um, uh, foremost in our mind a lot of the time, right? That's uh, right. there's a lot of episodes that have been uh, <laughs> have turned to cryptozoology at some point. Well, there's always a lot to say about it as well, and it is an area of, you know, from from all the blogging I've done at Tetzoo, I've got an idea of what interests people, excites, you know, brings in the largest number of visitors, and cryptozoology is one of the the buzz things. And uh, yeah, yes. yeah, this. Mm. I was going to mention something about every episode, but there's quite a lot of episodes here, so I probably won't. But uh, I think um, on the cryptozoological theme, um, having Blake Smith on was. It was quite good, wasn't it? That was good. That was a good episode. Yeah, it was good fun, yeah. Monster Tetrapod Cats is the title of that one. It was episode <laughs> seven. Seven already? Yeah, yeah. Well, we did a whole bunch of ones uh, in between, <laughs> obviously. Uh, between <laughs> three and seven. We did yeah, four. I did think there were four, numbers I between them. Um, mm. <laughs> uh, another great theme of ours has been... Um, has been our films, and we haven't done so many of those recently. Uh, I suppose we haven't been watching things in synchronicity. No. But um, the perpetual debate about what is canon. Yeah, I had this discussion last night with my son. What, we were what, talking what, about. The, yeah, sorry. Well, we were talking on. about the Alien franchise, and yeah. he was telling me about all this stuff to do with uh, uh, the um, Praetorian xenomorphs and the xenomorph. Uh, the the alien empress and all these and there's and the fact there's empress face huggers and all this kind of extra complexity that people have added to the the um, life cycle of xenomorphs and and how there's meant to be he was describing them as different species but it was clearly meant to be different casts there was meant to be like a runner cast and a, a humanoid cast and I'm like no that's not the idea behind xenomorphs the idea is that they're polymorphic and their appearance depends on the biology the anatomy of their hosts and then i had to have a whole and i said the stuff you're talking about will it's not canon it's not canon will (laughs) it's what's canon i said well let me put it to you this way so we start talking about star wars so in star wars right 
C-3PO and R2-D2 find themselves on Tatooine that purchased by Luke Skywalker, but there's a cartoon series called Droids, which tells the story of C-3PO and R2-D2 before they're purchased by Luke Skywalker. And they had loads of adventures. They were all around the galaxy and went into, got, got involved in loads of japes and scrapes, met loads of different villains and baddies and heroes and Jedi and other droids, blah, blah, blah. Well, so there's all that rich, exciting story, the droids of Star Wars. But then George Lucas, at any moment, can come along and say, <clears throat> I'm going to make a new movie. It's going to be called Episode 3 of Edge of the Sith. And in that movie, R2-D2 and C-3PO, they're on an Alderanian blockade runner or whatever the hell it's called, and they're going to stay there for 18 years. Yep. What? You mean the whole of droids never happened? Now, don't get me wrong. I don't have any special emotional attachment to droids, but pff, droids becomes non-canon through the whim. Of course of it's non-canon. It's not a film. But it's part of the Star Wars franchise. It, it, it doesn't matter. It's not a film. It's not canon. And I would go so far because the prequels are so terrible that they're not canon either. And they contradict mm. the later ones. So the only ones that are canon are the three original ones. I hear that Disney has appointed some sort of committee to decide what's canon, haven't they? Yeah, I hope they, they chuck out just about everything but the first, first lot. Of the course, there are lot, probably oh, subtle yeah, contradictions in the first first films too, aren't there? Because they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't. They didn't have the whole thing planned out beforehand. It's pretty obvious that Lucas, in particular, has just been making it up as he went along, <laughs> cl claiming that it's also part of some grand story arc. It's no way. It's just come on. In fact, in fact, the stories even are that that it's literally on the set of the Empire Strikes Back, where he says, "You know, it'd be really cool." If Darth Vader was your, was your father, <laughs> let's go with that. Let's see what happens. Darth Vader looks like he does, not because he fell into lava on a planet. What's the planet called? It is a volcanic planet. Um, uh, I can't remember what it's called. Whatever, the volcanic planet where, he, where, where Anakin gets badly damaged. Um, the original idea for Darth Vader is he's meant to be able to to fly in space from ship to ship. So I thought, well, he's got to have a cool suit with a helmet on, so let's kick him out like that. Not because, <laughs> oh, we're, we're, we're covering up some... We're just... We're covering up someone who's like a half-burnt stump of a person. It's like, no, there's... Uh, and, and Ewoks. Yeah. And Wookiees. Yeah, you know where Ewoks come from? This is one of my favourite Star Wars facts. So originally, originally, the idea is that they go to In Return of the Jedi, which is going to be called Revenge of the Jedi. I think everyone knows that. They were going to go to Kashyyyk, a Wookiee home planet, which obviously they do in one of the prequels, which is a really annoying bit in that film. That's, that's Revenge of the Sith as well, isn't it? Because Mace Windu... <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing? John, you've done it again. You've taken us down this rat trap. We're never, there's no escape. Let me just finish this, right? So now going back again, this is all referencing stuff in previous episodes. You know how in one of the episodes we said how the expected behavior for people in american cinemas is different from people in the civilized world you know how in american cinemas America. yeah <laughs> again this bugs me about movies there's like because obviously the majority of films we have in mind are made by american studios they're they conform to what's expected from american audiences by which i mean they tell a joke or someone throws a punch and then there's a couple of seconds of silence because that's the part where the audience goes like that which is what they actually do in cinemas so in 
Revenge of the For Sith. the benefit of listeners, I should point out you're doing a little Yosemite Sam dance there. <laughs> My biscuits are burning. Yeah. Um, uh, Mace Windu says, oh, yeah, man, those... <laughs> gotta, go, gotta go to Kashyyyk. Yeah, okay. Okay, you're going to Kashyyyk, Wookiee home planet, we get it. But then, close up on Yoda, Yoda says, mm, Wookiee homework, you must go. Mm. Back to Mace Windu. Yeah, gotta go to Kashyyyk. Mofo, and then back to Yoda says, mm, to the Wookiees, you'll go. And it's like, yeah, you've made the point. We get it. You're doing this to the audience. We go, yeah, we're going to see some Wookiees. <laughs> <laughs> so they did get in that whole going to Kashyyyk bit, but they were going to have it originally in Return of the Jedi when it was Revenge of the Jedi. But the, apparently the thinking was that by Re- Return of the Jedi, and we've gotten to know a Wookiee, we've gotten to know Chewbacca quite well, Chewbacca's always tinkering with stuff, isn't he? He's like a techie kind of nerd. He's always like, he knows how to, he knows how to put a droid back together. He knows how to fly loads of ships and stuff. He's, he's not an animal that lives in the forest and eats berries. So, we're, so, <laughs> yeah. we're, so the idea that we're going to go to some, some forest world and there's going to be people living in tree huts now seems incongruous with what we know about Wookiee biology and culture. So apparently, George Lucas, I presume, said, nah, we've got the Wookiees, this isn't right for Wookiees. I don't want Wookiees anymore. Let's have something different. So instead of Wookiees, you get little ones. Wookiee, Ewok. Wookiee, mm. Ewok. Mm. Ewoks. So Ewoks are like mini Wookiees. <laughs> and I'll stop there. Oh, my God. Oh, good God. God. What have you done? I don't know. That was 10 minutes or so. Uh, like, uh, you know, well, that's, that's Tetrapod Gaps for you, isn't it? Oh dear! So I was going to run through some more things we did. What other things did we do? Oh, the whole big um, uh, Pacific Rim thing, but we won't dive into that. Uh, what's been your highlight of the last year? What's your favourite bit of what the podcast? The podcast, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I can't remember any of it really. Yeah, me either. <laughs> Oh, did I tell you about the new tape here? <laughs> There's a new tape here from Brazil. Really? It's called a new tape Tepris, That's amazing. Cavamardi. I think that's one of my highlights. Yeah. Now, episode 13, serious, in seriousness. Well, first of all, before we move away from the tape here, I yeah. should say... <laughs> That that um there's a so that's a new big South American landmark that's just been described from Brazil. Mm, mm. But there's there's a paper just come out in Plus One on a new Amazonian river dolphin called now there's eight this is a thirteen letter word with eight vowels in it. Inia araguiadens aragui aragui ara inia araguiensis maybe. Mm-hmm. So a new species of living river dolphin. So, <clears throat> again, in the context of what I said about the tape, this is a big deal. People describing like a new uh, aquatic, but, you know, in a terrestrial environment, a new terrestrial, in quotes, um, modern-day um, mammal. However, there is some. there are some problems. Uh, first of all is that um, their idea that it's a species... I think this is well known. I hope this is well known now. But what the, what the, what the hell is a species? You know, a species is what that, whatever the hell you want it to be. It's a population and people have decided to call it a species. But whether that means it's a species equivalent to other things we call species, that depends on your personal perspective. Because it's really close to one of the other species. There's supposed to be two species of Inia, Boliviensis and Geofrensis. And this one is closer to Geofrensis than is Boliviensis. 
and I was hoping it was going to be more distant, in which case you could make a stronger case for it being distinct. The anatomical details that are supposed to differentiate it are really subtle and not very well explained. It's both basically supported by, its validity is supported by molecular characters, 27 molecular characters. And they didn't, in the paper, these guys, the first author has got a, a, a totally unpronounceable surname. It's, it's uh, H-R-B-K or something? Herbrook? <laughs> I don't know. They didn't do they didn't do a good enough job of showing that this isn't clearly referable to one of the named populations anyway. Mm. Um, and I'll, I'll stop there. On yeah, that have point, you moved on yeah. to the second segment already, which was papers? No, because I think you no, have. this was this was a necessary spin-off in okay. connection with the tape here. Yes, which was linked to Tetsu highlights. The yeah. highlights were definitely the definite highlight for me was episode thirteen because of all the content we covered. Yeah, the amazing stuff we did. And it, I don't. I think people think we're kidding, but we're really not. <laughs> <laughs> I still think. I still think you should release. You know what you said. You can't do this, can't you? Release like the half that's salvageable, and, and then let people make up their own. Uh... <laughs> it's not salvageable though, because there's conversation. The conversations are one side. Uh, yeah, yeah, but well, what is we do salvageable? have you droning on and on and on sometimes. Oh yeah, <laughs> which yeah, I know that. you love. Uh, yeah, but and he. By the way, if he is kidding. I I really dislike the bits that are just long sections of me talking like that. Cash for questions bit about elephant tusks. That's terrible, and I'd be interested to know what people think about that. I don't like that at all because it's basically the twenty or thirty minutes of me just talking nonstop. Let's that's put, what, let's put that's what that. people tune in for, Darren. That's why they tune into the Tetrapod Zoology podcast. To hear you not. drone on and on and on and on and on about tetrapods. That's what we're here oh. for. With occasional ranting about films. Um yes. Uh, other episodes of note. We had Memo on to discuss the Cryptozoologicon. That was pretty good. Um but I think that's it. Yeah, it's been alright. <laughs> <laughs> People have been pretty pretty good at being support <laughs> supportive of the podcast. <laughs> Haven't they? Sorry. Thanks to everyone yeah, yeah. that donated. That's been pretty good. Yeah, thank you. Oh, oh, Darren, we sold some t-shirts. No way! Yeah. How many? So two. Wow. <laughs> wow. We're the richest astronauts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I shall go on Thanks holiday. to those people. Yes. <laughs> um so, what do you think? What is the future of the Tetrapod Zoology podcast? Now, I would point one interesting thing is we try to do it every two weeks, and clearly we haven't quite managed that, have we? 18 episodes in a year. <laughs> it's a bit short. Yeah. It's a bit short. But um, regularity uh, in the podcast, I, I don't know whether it's important. I'd like to know whether people think it is. Um, whether we should be aiming to have a sort of a regular thing every two weeks of getting a podcast out. And I also kind of think that with due respect, it doesn't matter what people say, because this, the problem with this is fitting it in to everything else. And I think we do the best we can. I mean, I was thinking that there should be one next week, but I can't do next week at all, which is why we're doing this now. Yeah. Because it's cr procrastination Friday for me. I can't be bothered to do any work. Um <laughs> But um, yeah, so I I do think about two, uh, every two weeks is right. But yeah, listeners, uh, uh, yeah, be interested to know what what people think. Do they want more or less? 
<laughs> We're interested in hearing from listeners who want fewer podcasts. <laughs> I know some bloggers is that I wish you would blog less. <laughs> I don't want to see your stuff online. Um, and no, I'm not thinking of anyone you're th- that people are thinking of. Um, I'm not going to mention any names. Um, yeah, there was something else I wanted to say and now it's gone. Uh, yes, so um, yeah, feedback on that. Appreciated. Yes. Um, so yeah, we we I suppose that we're just going to keep doing what we've done so far, right? For the coming year. Don't think. Th- oh, one thing you want to do clearly is add lots and lots of segments with jingles. Well, not lots and lots, just a reasonable. <laughs> yeah, like five or six segments with jingles. So well, l- listeners have that to look forward to. Lots of segments with jingles. They're sort of segments we do anyway, but we'll make little jingles for them, which will probably mostly be Darren shouting something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it'll be very funny, and uh, it gives us an excuse Cow and to read corner it. cash for questions. Um, what's the other one you want to do? Someone's well, wrong on the internet. You'll ruin it if you are you giving it away. It will have to be like this: someone is wrong on the internet. And then with like echoes and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and also, but if you do that, it's, it's like it's kind of silly because you're creating more work for yourself. It means you have to go and find. Someone yes. who's wrong on the internet this week or this fortnight mm. or whatever. And um, Well, you don't have oh, to do I'm it sure. every episode. You just do it when you do it. As and when you like. Yeah. And so we can have like 20 segments. We don't have to do them every uh, every episode. Mm. You just rotate rotate them in as, as necessary. So, yeah, That's always cool. thinking about how to improve the scientific content here on the Tetrapod Zoology yep, podcast. Yeah. Yep. Um, jingles and segments. There you go. And... So, so we mentioned last episode that Sarah Werning had been saying really nice things about there's on the integrative paleontologist blog at PLOS blogs. There's a little review of different, um, podcasters who do paleo paleontology content. And there's, and she's, Sarah's written a little bit about us and said good things about us. Very kind things. Thank you very mm-hmm. much. And, but the funny thing is, she says that compared to some of the other, you know, she talks about the pros and cons of different podcasts. She says, ours is straight into the action. There's no, there's no preamble <laughs> nonsense, which you realize we've been talking for over half an hour so far. Preamble nonsense. So I thought like, we did lots and lots of preamble nonsense. It always seems uh, like a lot of preamble nonsense we, to me. We normally go straight into discussion about tapirs. That's what it is. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I hear there's a new one. I hear there's a new one just being described. It's all right. called tap- yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all right. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Shut up. Okay, so we've got to move on. We've got to move on. Straight into the action. We're at 28 right. minutes. Let's go straight into the action. Well, um, okay, so... Paintless. Sorry, go on. Paintless. Yeah, so there's a buttload of new and newsy stuff that's just that's just come out. I mean, you, that's true of any particular time, but there's a lot of things that have been caught... Port, have been, caught the zeitgeist you know things that are uh, sort of regarded as mainstream interest so one of the biggest things and we'll go through go to facebook comments later thank you for everyone who's commenting on facebook and all the hundreds of people who are tweeting and stuff right now irony um axolotls yeah so so uh, a study has said that the axolotl um is officially extinct in the wild this is one of those things that actually isn't really news. It isn't really a surprise. And uh, if people remember the, I've written a few things about all the sal- all the living salamander groups and some of the fossil ones as well. But salamander groups at Tet Zoo, and I did an article a while ago about ambystomatids, the mole salamanders, the group that includes 
the uh, axolotl when it's kin. And um, people have been saying for years that they've, when they go to the lake that wild axolotls come from, which has got one of these um, difficult-to-pronounce Mexican-esque names, like Zoxalcoatl, you know, that kind of name. Mm. Um, I, I'm going to try and find it now because I can't remember. Uh, they've said that they can't find them. They can't find axolotls in the wild. But they, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's spelt with an X. Exo, Zoximilco, Zoximilco. That, that's the lake that wild axolotls are endemic to. When people have gone to try and find them, um, they can't. But they do find, they do sometimes see axolotls for sale in nearby marketplaces, which suggests that local people do know where to find them. Um, <clears throat> Mm. and that there might be a few still around. This new study from this year says that they couldn't find any at all in the region, thinking that it has now gone extinct in the wild, which is, uh, well, sad, but not surprising. And, well, the fact that axolotls are so well propagated in captivity means that it's not all bad, because this at least is a species that's obviously going to persist forever. You know, the axolotls aren't going to go extinct. They're always going to be in captivity. They're not in the wild, but... Yeah. interesting question you know maybe in future we could um there's still wild type axolotls they're not all pink albinos they're still dark ones so maybe someday people could restock the habitat with wild type ones or even reverse engineer them to make them more like wild ones and put them back um yeah yeah it's an interesting sort of thing being extinct in the wild but quite common in captivity or even you know just reasonably well stocked in captivity and how many of these will get round to reintroducing into the wild well we know that with a lot of animals we're going to come to the point where okay we already know that we can't um afford to save as many as we want to and our people are already talking about a thing called extinction management where they basically let some species go extinct because they're not regarded as a higher priority as other species and with an animal like the axolotl, yes, it's bad that the wild ones have gone extinct, but the species as a whole isn't extinct. You know, genetically, they're intact. There's lots of them. Mm. Um, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have any kind of coherent point to make there, but it's like there's, quite, there's a few animals we could say this where, you know, they're not, they're not really extinct. They're okay, and it's bad that the wild ones have gone extinct. But, um, and seen within the context of um, uh, mole salamanders in general, the axolotl is one of like a quite a large list of species that are critically endangered or nearing extinction or possibly have gone extinct. Um, it's just that it's the best known one. The fact that it has gotten so much news, the possible extinction in the world of the axolotl is because I believe this year is Year of the Salamander, one of these um, orchestrated events to try and drum up conservation interests for amphibian plight. Amphibians worldwide are in trouble, predominantly due to climate change. Lots of species of um, frogs, some salamanders, and maybe some Sicilians as well. Lots of species are in trouble due to the spread of Batrachochiridium dendrobotitis BD, this like killer chytrid fungus that affects amphibians, the spread of which appears to be linked to climate change. But good old-fashioned human buggery um, has, uh, <laughs> I mean, um, ruining of habitats and, and eating of everything that... <laughs> I meant buggering of habitat. Um, that has. Um... <laughs> You're not. You've not suddenly turned into one of those uh, crazy evangelicals that claims certain types oh, of uh... climate change is caused by ho rising homosexuality. That kind of thing. Um, 
Yeah, that's that's. I assure you, that's not what I had in mind. Um, <laughs> pe- people screwing with the habitat, removing the axolotls' habitat, and and capturing them and eating them is like, yeah, that's that's kind of appears to be the main problem in this particular case. But um, amph- I, it's, I think it's well known. It's well known that it was a few years ago that amphibians uh, are in trouble. I mean, the global amphibian crisis is a cause of major concern. Um, as is the problem with bats and white nose syndrome and melting starfishes and snakes dying off and all kinds of horrible stuff, which, uh, yay, well done, humans. Yeah. Ah, we're, we're great. I think the main thing is that concentrating on any one particular species just is uh, the, when there's thousands teetering on the edge seems kind of... Not that you can't talk about it, but just that the action plan to save species by species seems tricky you yeah, do have well, to you do have to prioritize you do have to decide which ones are going to are more important yeah, than others yeah which which i would say is why people increasingly when you talk to conservationists they talk about you know flagship species like tigers and giant pandas and elephants because if you can serve um a habitat that's suitable for them which could be you know you're talking about square kilometers or, or, or tens of square kilometers then obviously you are potentially uh preserving hundreds to thousands or more of uh, of other things but, yeah. um, but but then on the other hand some of these you know like endangered snails and frogs and things the, the populations can be saved in fish tanks and that has literally happened you know there are cases yeah. people have gone in and, and rescued whole species through one captive breeding attempt which um doesn't require it requires the equivalent of like a politician's evening tab at the minibar you know that kind of thing and uh, people have done this. They've got take into, that politicians. <laughs> they've got into um, John Travolta's, uh, you know, uh, weekly fuel allowance, that that kind of thing, because uh, he owns, he flies around in his own personal seven four seven, or used to do anyway. Um, <clears throat> Scientology. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, take that Scientologists. Oh yeah, yeah. Pe- people have people have moved through Central America. And and gone to places where they can see this chytrid fungus spreading through amphibian populations, and they've gotten like a head of where they think the uh, the front line of attack is, and have have taken you know as many specimens as they can find, and then taken them to labs elsewhere, United States, Europe, whatever, and thereby ostensibly safeguarding those populations uh, for a while. Although one dirty little secret of captive breeding is that people, I believe, are only ever working. Um, on a scale of like at most, I think two hundred years. So all of our now there is the whole seed bank thing where people are putting um, uh, sperm and eggs of animals into deep storage, but um, by and large everything is still um, well short term. So I don't know. I'm not going anywhere with this, but um, it's an mm. interesting thing. Yeah, but uh, I think that. Um... Just a general prediction for the world is that we're going to go through a crunch and then we will get this stuff somewhat sorted. The problem is how many things go extinct while we um while we work this out. You know, as we shift from fossil fuels to um, non-carbon emitting uh, electricity generation and power generation. Um, you know, I think I think all this stuff in the long term will be fixed. It's just that 
how many how many years is that going to take us and how bad will it get before we start to uh, improve things again so you know a uh, hundred years this this might be enough right that you, you can start reintroducing things into the wild and and that we won't expect it to go as badly as it did right now. It'll go better because things are better preserved. <clears throat> I'm pretty pessimistic about this. I don't think that things are ever going to improve. I think they're just going to get steadily worse in terms of loss of habitat and declines of species. And also, I think we're going yeah, to but I tell you, that's that's just wrong because um, population is going to peak. Um, all the predictions suggest that population is going to peak in the next hundred years. Um, sure. And we are drastically improving the efficiency of things like farming. So in 100 years, we simply won't need as much space as we do now. The smaller population that requires a smaller amount of land to feed them, um, I think things will improve. I think I don't, I don't really see any need or evidence for pessimism. I guess that's I see what lots I'm of evidence. I see lots of. Well, I see lots no, of no. You see evidence of things getting worse, but so, you've got, but you don't see any evidence that that's going to continue forever. Why would that continue forever? Nothing continues forever. But Especially something say, which has a ceiling. Well, but what about all these places where the rate of change at the moment way exceeds anything that can be repaired naturally? And so, for example, the destruction of Amazonia is proceeding at a pace where it's difficult to think that unless people stop entirely how much tropical rainforests in the amazon region is going to be there isn't going to be enough for it to properly regenerate and there isn't going to be enough for for well a significant percentage of the species there to be able to persist you know because there aren't the intact yeah, habitats but my because you're not things just... that won't get worse well my argument is that they will at some point start to get better. So that's what I was talking about, a crunch time. So we're yeah. going through a crunch and it will continue to get worse for a while, but at some point that will start to reverse. And I think one of the obvious things <coughs> is that once populate, human population peaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I need to think about this some more, think about some like long-term predictions for... Cause there's, there's, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with you. That's kind of like a, a fairly sensible set of uh, observations but, um, which is why i think things like seed banks and keeping captive populations and that sort of stuff that's sensible stuff to do it's not hopeless yeah we should be doing that you know um because yeah. there is still hope that in the future things will be improved so we can reintroduce things into the wild we can have some wilderness it's probably less than we have right now but it might be in better shape than it is now if you see what i mean yeah and less and shaky well, yeah, and there's going to be crap loads of stuff that's just going to be gone forever and isn't replaceable. Indeed. And yes. things that often can't be replaced because they, they need like a long term, um, a persistent like uh, eco- a set of ecological conditions for them to have. Um, you, there's some animals you can't just chuck them into a habitat because there's loads of other things. They need to have like a sustainable food base. And some animals, uh, the reintroduction attempts and other such things have failed because the animals actually have their own African hunting dogs, for example, they need their own like culture, their own sort of like system of governance and, uh, <laughs> and education before yeah. you can reintroduce them. And so when people just reintroduce puppies that have been reared by other species, they don't survive in the wild. A particularly yeah. depressing thing about whale sharks is like, you know, 
there's there's a uh, set of uh, fisheries in in China which are killing. I think last year they killed more than six hundred adult whale sharks. It's like, well, that's clearly a sustainable fishery, and and everything's fine for whale sharks. They they clearly got a rosy future ahead of them. I somehow don't think. So um. Well, indeed, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I think one interesting that was... thing that is happening in conservation uh, uh, is that a lot of the places where you do get these charismatic anim animals, elephants, tigers, this sort of thing, they're, they're starting to take on more the feeling of an extended zoo rather than as wilderness, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So you, increasingly these animals are in managed, fairly heavily managed parks, right? Um <clears throat> I think that's probably yeah. that's that's a glimpse of the future right there. That's what it's going to be like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, uh, nice little discussion there on cost conservation and the future and stuff. Started off by axolotls. So I wanted to talk about just briefly touch on, and we mustn't we mustn't start having ten minute conversations on some of these other things. So you you, you just be quiet, John. Um, <laughs> I'll let you drone on and on like you like. <laughs> <laughs> so I just like so axolotls are list, are amphibians. I was going to say list amphibians then, whatever amphibians, list amphibians, whatever you want. BLZ Bufo, um, new paper by Susan Evans and colleagues just published on the anatomy of BLZ Bufo. This is a giant Cretaceous frog from um, Madagascar. Would have been it's pretty big. It's I, I I don't know the size off the top of my head, but you're talking about an animal. I think I think it's something like thirty centimeters long, maybe thirty centimeters wide. It belongs to a group called the Ceratophrinids, um, that sometimes called Pac-Man frogs. They include the horned frogs and uh, this mostly tropical South American group. Enormous mouths and yeah, they eat anything that come within reach. And um, Beelzebufa was a big one of those on Lake Cretaceous Madagascar, and. They've known about it for a while, bits and pieces, and people have suggested maybe it, people have said maybe this is a a neuron, a froggy thing that's big enough to eat baby dinosaurs, that kind of thing. In fact, there's a Todd Marshall illustration of one eating a baby, a belly sore. But um, yeah, more material of it showing that it's got kind of like weird big armor plates on its back, and it's got like a a, a big sort of expanded bony head shield thing, which is uh, very cool. So neat paper, plus one, open access. Um, Dinosaurs. We never talk about dinosaurs. There's a new weird titanosaur from China just been published called Zhongjianglong, uh, a Chinese titanosaur published by Peter Dodson and colleagues, and um, not known from a huge amount of material. But one thing that's really weird about it is its shoulder blade is the actual um, uh, the shaft of the actual scapula is really long, parallel sided. And, well, really long, the scapula and the coracoid together, I think, are half as long as the, the whole of the animal's body. So what this actually means for the proportions of this sauropod, why would it have uh, a kind of this weird sort of subrectangular, straight-sided scapula? That looks really odd. And it kind of makes you wonder whether it had an especially deep body compared to the length of the body. Um, there is a reconstruction of it in the paper. I haven't read it yet, but I'd be interested to know what they say about it. Mm. That's pretty cool. And one more thing on fossily things, um, Andrea Cow on Facebook suggested that we mention Atopodentatus, which is a middle Triassic Chinese marine reptile, just described by Cheng et al. in a new paper in Nature Wissenschaften. And this is a, so it's one of these weird Triassic marine reptiles, it's about 1.7 metres long. 
its head is proportionally really small compared to its body. And um, its its head is weird. Have you seen this, a topodentatus? No. Okay, so the head is really short, and it's got hundreds of teeth. Well, no, it doesn't have hundreds of teeth. It has, I think, over 175-ish. I haven't read the paper. I haven't got it in front of me. But it's got it's got a lot of teeth arranged in kind of like a comb-like mesh, suggesting that it's doing some sort of filtering thing. And the tips of both its upper and lower jaws are strongly downturned. So short-faced animal, jaws packed for these tiny, tiny, closely spaced teeth, and then like downturned, almost kind of rinkosaur-like deal on the tip of the premaxilla. But then the tip of the dentaries curved down as well. Then in the tip of the premaxillae where they bend down in this beak-like arrangement it actually looks like see what i'm doing with my hand there like that yeah, <laughs> yeah that's very so, helpful for our podcast <laughs> listeners. it looks like as if your two fingers are pointing downwards in parallel and then now in the paper they illustrate it with um they illustrate like teeth in the gap in between these two downward pointing things making it look kind of like a zip with teeth on both sides but if you look at the and that is you know, that's one of those things where you're like, what the hell is going on there? I just cannot make any sense of that. If you actually look at the photograph in the paper, however, it doesn't look like that. It looks instead as if rather than the teeth on both sides of these downward pointing processes, it looks like the teeth are located on the medial surface, on the inward facing surface of these downward pointing projections. Um, it's strange and um, some, some clearly some weird, like, suspension feeding thing going on there mm. and there's also as is often the case with these weird triassic moon reptiles there is some well considerable uncertainty as to what kind of animal it is they suggest in the paper that it may be allied in some way to sauropterygians which is the big group that includes plesiosaurs and all of their relatives including placodonts nothosaurs pachypleurosaurs and the limbs of this animal really do look to me like those of a Stropterygian. The forelimb in particular looks very kind of Nothosaur-like. It's got that really distinctive, um, humorous, got, got like a, an old-fashioned telephone uh, receiver. Thank you to Roger Benson for that comparison. But people are also saying, well, it looks a little bit like a Thalatosaur. And the th Thalatosaurs are, the, are another group of weird, controversial, triassic marine reptiles, sometimes suggested in some phylogenetic studies to be close to ichthyosaurs, sometimes to be close to stropterygians, uh, and generally looking like really stretch-bodied kind of marine lizardy type animals. Um, so Atopodentatus, more extreme weirdness in Triassic marine reptiles, really exciting animal. Th did I also say the head is really tiny compared to the size of the body? I can't remember if I said that, but that's cool as well. So, what, And one more thing I want to talk about, and this isn't fossils, this is living animals because they're around as well, still, despite our efforts. Um, slow worms, yay, a new paper on slow worms published I don't by... think there's anything that's named so excitingly as slow worms. Like, yes. wow, what an animal, a slow worm. <laughs> the slow worm. As opposed to all those um, really quick worms. It's got an alternative name, the blind worm. <laughs> <laughs> or, or the... Or that other well-known one that everyone uses in vernacular usage, ovet. <laughs> ovet. Apparently the ovet is another word for anguis, the slow worms. Mm. So new paper by Gvods, Dick and colleagues in Molecular Phylogenetics and Evolution, which is regular reading if you're interested in phylogeography and new species where they fit in phylogenies. Um, they found, Gvods, Dick and colleagues found that the slow worms... Um, 
or in Italy, but also in bits of some of the other countries around Italy, they found that this population was ancient, genetically distinct from the other slowworm populations that have been proposed. This is of special interest to me because I love slowworms and I love reading about them. And they propose that the Italian ones and the near Italian ones should be recognized as a new species, which they call Anguis veronensis. This is not a new name. It was initially published in 1818. They find it to be particularly close to... Now, this is one of those things where... Growing up reading about slowworms, they're always put in the same species. All of the Eurasian slowworms are all anguis fragilis. But then in the 80s, people started saying, ah, oh, you've got to recognize these ones from the, uh, the like, Greek islands. So, so Cephalonica was, was um, uh, resurrected. Then people started saying, ah, oh, these ones with the blue spots from the Balkans, uh, Colchica, they should be resurrected. And then it's some of the ones from Greece, they should be recognized as a dis- distinct species. So Anguis graeca is named. And now with Veronentis as well, we're talking about five species of slowworms. We've got an endemic Eurasian radiation of slowworms. This is amazing stuff. I'm thrilled by this. So um, five slowworms. Five. So, and five, five slowworms. Five slowworm species. And... Um, like yeah, slowworms are, slowworms are great. Uh, well, they're not big because they're pretty small. They're like <laughs> they're, they're generally generally less than thirty centimeters long. Never yeah. more than sixty centimeters long. But and, and I, I say this, I, I, I say this to people in like uh, you know loads of Americans and Australians, and I'm sure people elsewhere in the world as well. They go out herping on a weekend. They go out herping, and they'll photograph like a hundred species. You know, if it's in the Americas, they'll they'll find salamanders under logs and that sort of stuff. If it's Australia, they go into the desert and you're tripping over lizards and snakes, right? But um, here in rainy old England, how many how many herps do we have? About five. <laughs> well, no, we don't have five, but we have like three lizards, three snakes, three frogs. You know, two toads, that kind of thing. So I feel that it's pretty poor. You know, it's disappointing. Depauperate herptofauna is the term I've used on, on Tetsu a few times. But it means, this in some ways, is a good thing because it means you get to know the species that you have really, really well because you see them again and again and again. <laughs> and, and Britain being the home of natural history books, I think that is a fact. Natural history books come from the United Kingdom. Other countries don't make them. It's all the UK. <laughs> um, there's loads and loads of books on... Uh, British reptiles and amphibians, which of course, and you know, if you're someone like me who's grown up reading about these animals since you're a kid, well, then you've read about 20 books about <laughs> everything that's known about slowworms. Um, <laughs> I do have but, a solution. If you want some more, you could just introduce them, right? Well, that has been done. We have a load of aliens. I mean, we've got like African um, clawed toads and bullfrogs and uh, a, um, alien. Western Palearctic water frogs and alien wall lizards and tortoises and midwife toads and firebelly toads and others. So we have a lot of aliens, oh, some of go. which so are... So it's being rectified as we speak. <clears throat> and some of those groups were present here in the geological past. So a lot of things that we lost during Pleistocene glaciations, we've got now got those groups back here. And some individuals that we have, uh, we have here are going to live probably long enough to start breeding in a couple of decades when average temperatures are warmer because one of the things that one of the things that constrains their um, distribution is average annual temperature 
Um, mind you, that's assuming that the average temperature for the for the United Kingdom is going to increase. I think, well, the average temperature increases, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the number of well, frost-free days increases because... Yeah. Sorry, got. Well, it doesn't. We're not necessarily clear that the average temperature will increase because. No, no. As, as of course. Climate. Well, we climate touched on this last effects. time, didn't we? The, yeah. So warming in some places can mean cooling in other places, and yeah. and places like Britain will be screwed if the um, North Atlantic conveyor uh, switched off, wouldn't we? Yes. Isn't there a movie about this? So, so or a documentary? It's called The Day After Tomorrow. <laughs> oh yeah, that documentary. <laughs> That's all about the. Uh, yeah. I love the fact at the end. I'm not the first person to say this. I'm sure the, the bit at the end. There's some people in space, and they look out and they go, "Oh wow, look how clear the air is," and they see the whole world is basically now covered in ice, but the sea level's the same. <laughs> the uh, there's like ice everywhere, but the coastline is exactly the same. And it's like mm, you didn't think that one through, did you? I um, don't think they thought very much of that film through, to be honest. What's the most hilarious bit in that film? There's some stuff in that film. That... The CGI wolves are pretty bad. CG wolves. And originally the Super Frost, so, so uh, Jake Goodenhall is chased down a hallway by Super Frost, but originally he was chased by wolves. I thought, that's a bit crap. <laughs> <laughs> talking of wolves, talking of wolves, uh-huh. it, was, just, it was lunchtime a couple of hours ago. I watched An American Werewolf in London. Or not all of it, because that would be a very long lunch. But um, part of it. That's such a good film. That's such <laughs> well, a we can film. talk about that, but not not today, because we've still got heaps of stuff to get through. All right. And those great big things, those great big sidetracks in the um, Tetsu birthday thing, that didn't help. And then I talked too much during the uh, conservation John. bit. Okay, so I think we have to crack on. We have to crack on now. And we've got a cash for question. No way. <laughs> yeah, cash for question. <laughs> oh, geez, I've lost it now. <laughs> ah, okay. Ah, it's from Marco, and I checked beforehand of how to pronounce the name, and he says Bosher. So there you go. Marco Bosher sends in this question. Are species self-aware? We often hear that species try to keep themselves separate after speciation, e.g. species recognition hypothesis. I wonder if and how that works. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Are species self-aware? What, as in, as in, um, is there some kind of uh, um, push within all individuals of a population to keep themselves distinct and separate from others? Is that kind of what he's getting at? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've yeah. just read what... So I would say, yeah, I, I, I don't think there's any chance that there's sort of some sort of super... A collective consciousness thing going on of species keeping themselves self-aware, right? That, that, I, don't, mm. I don't think hive mind, <laughs> yeah, hive mind type thing. But yeah, okay. So in individuals, how strong is this? How do they make sure they speciate? And why? Why is there a um a pressure to? Mm. I don't know. Well, I'm rephrasing it badly, but. Uh, I think I think I know where we're going, and it's going to be difficult to, uh, as is tradition. We're not going to be able to come up with like a good, clean answer. We're going to come up with a very, very messy answer, probably. Uh, maybe not even answer at all. Let's get that clear to start with. <laughs> but um, the thing about evolution is it's cash is for natural questions, selection. not cash for answers. <laughs> Indeed, the thing about evolution is individuals are selected for over other individuals with respect to their 
their persistence, the, how many juveniles, the, how many you know surviving offspring they produce, all that kind of stuff. So uh, given that natural selection means that individuals are selfish with respect to other individuals, this means that the uh, perpetuation, the way in which a species is perpetuated, the way in which any population is perpetuated is messy because you have individuals screwing over other individuals for their own uh, genetic um, you know, for their, their own um, advancement of their own personal... Uh, I've forgotten another word. Um, in order that they might survive and in order that they might successfully mate and in order that they might propagate. successfully produce the greatest... Yeah, propagate. Yeah, in order they might produce the greatest numbers of offspring, then individuals are making, in quotes, decisions, because we're not saying that all organisms have the same level of... Uh, autonomy and consciousness but organisms individuals are making their own decisions so there are many individuals within a population that will decide that it's worth the time and trouble to say hybridize with members of of another population that may not be the same species because they don't really care about keeping the species pure that's not the game is it it's like am i going to produce offspring that are going to perpetuate my genes and hybridizations seen within the context of the biological species concept are generally regarded as like a bad thing and that's something animals don't do you know no self-respecting donkey would ever sleep with a horse but it would do if there were no other which way around did i put it donkey sleep with horse there, if there were no other available donkeys and the only available um uh, partners were horses then it might be in the donkey's interest to, <laughs> to try it on with the horse because you know some possibly some surviving juveniles are better than none um so in that case no i i kind of think that it's really messy and that individuals are just going to do what's best for them as individuals and thus is the nature of natural selection it's organisms survival of individuals over others does mm. that make any kind of sense i think it does but i think we need to break it down a little bit more and to get into the heads of what's going on <laughs> the heads of these animals because i think it is a mistake to think that they're not thinking i mean i, I think this is true of okay uh, lots of organisms without brains or with uh, very simple mechanisms i think that's that is sort of the case but um there's there's more complicated mechanisms going on in things like donkeys and you know mammals reptiles uh all these uh, bigger brained sorts of animals and i think we do get a sort of a microcosm of what's going on with people because we tend to think of ourselves as very separate but i think the same processes are going on and i think this is partly what we see is with people is i think racism is actually um a symptom of this incipient thing of wanting to mate with your particular group i think mm -hmm. there is something like that going on in animals where they they start to find particular things attractive and tend to want to stay in that group but counter to that i think there's another thing going on where a little bit of exoticness is good right i think this yeah. is a genetically programmed into us that we want to both bring in new genes occasionally but also there's a cultural and genetic component to to splitting i Yes, um, I was going to say this because the results from people are controversial because aren't there some studies showing that people will choose partners that are most genetically different from them as opposed to more similar to them? Um, I think that is 
sometimes the case, but I, as I say, well, my, I, I haven't read the literature on this, so this but is not an answer, but I'm just sort of yeah. saying what, what sorts of things we're thinking about. But I think that yeah. there are two things going on and they're contradictory and sometimes one thing wins and sometimes the other thing wins. Mm. Mm. I think that's what's going on. And I think that's probably yeah. going on for lots and lots of animals. I don't think that's just people. I think that all the evidence we have is that the more we learn about non-human animals, it's like... I've, so, you know, there's, there's some people you can have this conversation with and they're cool with it and others who are definitely not cool with it. But I do think that the more we understand about other, other animals, it's like all the stuff that goes for us. We're, we're, we're so similar to so many other things across the board. I do not believe humans are in the least bit special. It's all shades of grey. We are part, we're part of a spectrum. We're somewhere on the spectrum. Maybe we're at one end, the extreme end of the spectrum. But sorry, I'm babbling. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, but so if yeah. <laughs> uh, this could get quite disgusting quite quickly, but yeah. what are we sexually attracted to, right? So I think this is probably similar to other animals. There's a certain distance we'll go, mm. but once it's sort of outside that distance, it becomes a bit yes. crazy. And what what I was going to say when you were talking about the uh, genetic closeness and what people are prepared the people's tendency people's preferences for, for for partners is one thing that maybe makes us different from the other kinds of animals that we're thinking of is that every single uh human population is probably more closely related to one another than is you know even even you take two extremes the most different kinds of people in terms of form and skin color and all that stuff they're still more similar than are or certainly more similar than things like horses and donkeys you know that kind of stuff so um even even the most disparate possible mating partner for any person is still really really similar but um yes that's why i said um, sort of in the incipient sort of stage yes, of this going yes on. yeah so if there is a preference if a donkey has a preference between other donkeys and horses then we know that it will choose to hang out and um be sexual with other donkeys Unless it's a deviant donkey <laughs> or one that's been raised with horses or something, but um, ordinarily they will they will be um, most attracted to, most uh, stimulated by the sexual signals of their own species. Yeah, but I'm saying that there's enough cases where other situations arise, and given that sperm is cheap in most species. And therefore, given that males will often take advantage of mating opportunities that may be unwise or even dangerous, then um, yes, I think we do see all kinds of stuff uh, that, that confuses and blurs species boundaries. And also within the context of this whole discussion, let's never forget, didn't this touch on something I said earlier about the river dolphins? The fact that what is a species anyway? You know, the, given, given evolution, which is a fact... Um, then um, the law of evolution on the Tetrapod Zoology <laughs> podcast. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we believe in evolution here. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> careful there, Darren. Given, careful. Yeah, careful. Given given evolution, then obviously the boundaries between the entities that we call species are fuzzy, and we, as people, as as the only organisms writing about this stuff and worrying about it that that much, we find you know, sharp boundaries. But if we can actually observe the transition from one species to the next, then obviously those aren't sharp boundaries. Obviously there is hybridization and mess, confusing mess happening all over the place. So yeah, on that basis, species are not distinct kind of units that are striving for uniformity. They are things that have like, a, I would say a core of 
genetically and anatomically and behaviorally homogenous individuals to a degree but then at the, around the edges of the species then you've got all kinds of stuff happening with you know isolated pockets that are evolving in their own directions other other populations that are co um that are um, hybridizing with other populations and um you have you have mess and the more you understand the more the better you understand genetics and phylogeography and what's going on in terms of populations moving around and coming into contact with other populations um then uh, yeah species cannot be regarded as entities that are striving towards a kind of distinction from other species yes but okay so let's take an example like um what i think makes this tricky is birds which seem to speciate like crazy even though presumably they have fewer (laughs) geographic boundaries than i mean i know birds can be geographically located but uh, compared to other animals they're quite free where they can move um why 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 is that happening what's the what's the pressure in birds to for populations groups of individuals to become reproductively isolated from other ones and i think that's sort of getting to the original question of like what there does seem to be in some sorts of animals because i take your point and i think this is right that a lot of it's just a big mess right and there's no such thing as pressure to speciate that's not you don't need this but i think in some cases particularly birds you do need something something there which um gets at why they speciate like crazy compared to other animals or they seem to maybe that's wrong. yeah yeah i mean i think part of the reason that um people do say that the differences that allow us to recognize different species of birds are human constructs the fact that because we can eat because they're obviously using v- predominantly visual signals and to a lesser degree vocal signals as well but because they're using these signals that are really obvious to us all the, the all the time we're talking about this i have the white-headed gulls in mind you know herring gull lesser and greater blackback gulls and various other yellow-legged gulls and all those gulls um the fact that we can tell the populations apart quite easily means that we've traditionally recognized them as species whereas if you were to think of them within the way that you think about other groups of species other groups of animals their differences are so genetically shallow and geologically young and minor in anatomical and acoustic and behavioral terms in other groups of animals you wouldn't regard them as separate species you'd regard them as like color morphs of the same species. okay so, but are they, so are they, they are, but it's reproductive isolation i think we want to get out here isn't it yeah so yeah ignore the species word for a second and just talk about reproductively isolated yeah, populations but, but the but this i can't see this in any other way than what I've already said, because these populations are not reproductively isolated. Yeah. They yeah. are all fuzzy around the boundaries and they're all they're all hybridizing with adjacent populations. So they obviously have like a core range, the kind you know, they they mostly breed in an area that's suited suitable for them. That's where they've arisen. But then around the edges where like one that prefers marine conditions is overlapping with one that prefers more inland conditions, then you have this hybrid zone. Yeah. And um, you get this for the gulls. The whole the, the old idea of the ring species is now uh, for the white-headed gulls. The idea that you've got herring gulls in Europe, and then as you move east around Asia and then around North America until you come back to the other end of the ring on the Atlantic seaboard of North America, and then you've got a different species which can't interbreed with the herring gull. That whole thing has turned out to be um, overly simplistic and inaccurate because it, it seems now, I've, I think I wrote about this on Tetsu years ago, 
Tetsu version one or something. It seems that instead you've got these confusing overlapping populations, each of which has got like a center of distribution, but each of which has got its own complex relationships with the three or four populations around it. And each can interbreed with the next population, but because this, <laughs> I'm just going to go around in circles saying the same, saying the same thing. But I, all the all the examples I can think of, it's it's like that. It's like yes, you've got a core population in a certain area, but at the range at the at the fringes, it's fuzzy. Another example is carrion crows and hooded crows, which the hybrid zone has actually been moving throughout through Europe towards the west for the last couple of hundred centuries. But the populations are still, you can still tell, if you're in the core part of the range, you can tell the hooded crow from the carrion crow. But if you're in the hybrid zone, you can't because you have every single possible combination of mix and match in, present in the hybrids. Um, so I think your answer is that there is no pressure to remain separate after speciation, or that it doesn't need a particular explanation. There's no... The question is, yeah. we often hear species try to keep themselves separate after speciation. I wonder if and how that works. Yeah, and, and I'm saying no, they don't. That yeah. It's not a tree of life, it's a web of life. So even when two branches diverge, and you're talking about two distinct... Uh, imagine a V-shaped Di di divergence event and we think that those lineages are separate well at the tips of the branches they can hybridize so no they're not they're not being kept apart they might be kept apart by biogeography by vicariance or whatever you know because an ocean has arisen in between the two or something but if they meet up again they may be different enough to remain separate but they may not and i think one of the most interesting things about the whole kind of seen within the context of the web of life idea as opposed to the tree of life idea is that you know there are phylogenies now where people have found that lineages that have been that have diverged for a long time that are totally separate branches on the tree have met again and have created what appear to be a new hybrid species so um i've written about pear david's deer which some deer experts have proposed based on both anatomy and genetics is a recently evolved hybrid between members of the Wapiti lineage and members of a very genetically distinct and less well-known deer lineage. I think it's the um, white-lipped deer lineage, or Elds, the Elds deer lineage, rather. And there's a recently published case in woodpeckers where two woodpecker lineages, separate for a long time, as in over 20 million years, you know, since the Miocene, have met up again and have produced like a new hybrid species, which has always been a problem because it's, you know, combines features of these two lineages and people couldn't classify it before. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, there is some push for species to be distinct and, and they will tend to prefer, as you said, with respect to people and other animals, there is a preference for the sexual and social signals of the population to which you belong. But if conditions allow... If it's if it's worth it for the risk of it, then things will mate with members of populations will mate with members of other populations, even if they're a bit different. Because what the hell? Mm. What you got to lose? <laughs> <laughs> oh yes. Okay. Good answer. I think I think that is a good answer. Right. Um, I'm not sure it doing? is, but it's, uh... yeah, I think it. I think it was. I think it was. <laughs> okay, that's, yes. that's good. Okay. Now we've got. We're moving on. So that was our cash for question. Thank you, cash for questions provider. Yeah. What's his Marco name again? Marco Boscher. Marco Boscher. Yep. 
he's actually a great supporter of ours, so we should be... Thank you, Zim. Thank you, Marco. Um, and now we move on to uh, what I noted down as regular questions, but I think we should call them cheapskate questions. Cheapskate questions. So this is so. Thanks for everyone on uh, Facebook. Yun Wu, who another Tetsu supporter, Yun Wu suggests we talk about walking or in brackets talking with dinosaurs 3D. I know we're maybe. Um, I don't think we've Witten, got time now. No, Witten says I'd like further breakdown of the Witten Fuzz Index. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andrea Cow mentions Atopodentatus. Never heard of that. Not going to talk about it. Uh, Jamie says, uh, I'd like to caution people when discussing Atopodentatus when you look into the maw of Atopodentatus unicus. It's maw, in all its chthonic horror, looks back into you. Mm. Very well crafted thing there, Jamie. Um, and Andrea then says, now this is, this again links back to something I mentioned earlier. Andrea says, my question is, who would win in a fight between Pterosaur Heresies and Carnivora Forum? So if you spend your time Googling who would win in a fight between X and Y, or sometimes if you're just looking for neat stuff on neat animals, like, you know, dinosaurs or paleogene mammals or whatever, you'll come across this, this internet group called Carnivora Forum, basically like a giant chat room. And I've read it a couple of times. I've read sort of when, because people have... Um, discussed some things that have been covered on Tet Zoo a couple of times and um, let's just say it's inhabited by a certain kind of fan person who tends to have strong opinions on a certain idea uh, and now have you seen the movie Downfall about yes. Hitler yes, right yes. you know the famous Hitler's rant scene yeah and you know how people um do their own Hitler reacts version to all kinds of things like the closure of a certain nightclub or mm. uh, um, someone's done Hitler reacts to his legitimate zoological threat on carnivora being hijacked. So someone's, <laughs> someone's actually done uh, a dubbed in, not dubbed in, a, a subtitled version of the Hitler rant scene. And they've subtitled it as if he's talking about a discussion thread at carnivora forum. So it's very funny. It's on YouTube. Hitler, do hit Google Hitler reacts carnivora being hijacked. All right, okay, I I'll put I, it. I'll I, put I, it in the um. I was going to say we shouldn't put this in the notes because it's adult content. It's got a lot of swearing in it, and but what the hell? Okay, what the hell? Yeah. Do it if you want. We'll say but, um, warning swearing. Yes. <laughs> not safe for work. It's not swearing it's... in the show. That's what counts. <laughs> it's very <laughs> funny. He, uh, should I should I explain it? Because or, or will that ruin it? Yeah, don't explain it. Yeah, okay, don't, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but, so this carnivore forum—I've never come across this before. Is this like a big thing? No. No. It's it's a big thing in the same way, terrors or heresies is a big thing. It's like yeah. that's not that's not really a big thing. I mean, it's um a thing that you know you'll you'll know if you're a specialist. But um, yeah, it's like it's the uh, endless endless like pages and pages and pages of discussion on. Who would win between Spinosaurus and Tyrannosaurus? That kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah. But but I also I don't want to be mean about the people that are involved in this because I don't know any of them, and for all I know, some of them might be really great people, and they might actually be relevant experts on whatever it is they write about. I can't say I know it that well. Uh, Phil Hoare says, <laughs> "I just written my thunder." with an exclamation mark, as if that might mean something. My thunder is a pterosaur that was described by Ralph Molnar and a colleague. Can't remember the colleague. Sorry, um, a few years ago, 
the funny thing is that the paper was delayed by about 40 years or 20, <laughs> 20 years or 10 years, I don't know, because they submitted the paper. The editor, in their uh, efficiencynessness, efficiency, put the paper to one side and forgot about it. Efficiousness. They put it to one side and forgot about it for like 10 years. And the authors also forgot that they submitted the paper <laughs> for the same amount of time. And then it was one day that... Like, you got to imagine Ralph Mulder waking up and going, <laughs> my phone go. what happened to that paper? <laughs> um, so uh, it did get published eventually. And also, oh, wow, new pterosaur from Australia. It's going to be great. It's a chunk of jaw. It looks like a piece of rock. So <laughs> I'd have to go and look at the paper again. But I can't remember it being... Um, have you even heard of this, my thunga? Um, yeah, it's actually not bad. It is, it's a tip of a... Uh, it's got... It's got the aperture as well. It looks quite really? good, actually. But, you okay. know, yeah, it's, it's quite fragmentary. There's not much. I take it it's all It's just the back. tip of the snout. Yeah, it looks See, nice. We've, we've got Very good for Australia. Yes. Yeah, that's the thing. It's, um, well, that's, I think that's an important point. The fact that, you know, from a British perspective, we've got loads of, like, jaw tips from the Cambridge Greensand in particular. I was looking at um, a, a recently rediscovered collection of Cambridge Greensand derisals just a couple of weeks ago, actually. Um, but I think you're from your um, what's that term? Depending on how sort of provincial you are to a region, your your um, well, I suppose your provinciality is like from an Australian perspective. Is like, oh my god, it's the first one of those from Australia. We've got to get it in nature. Whereas someone that's used to working on Lyo Ning and China, they go, Pah. I yeah. threw away three of those last week because they're so boring. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm a, I'm a Wielden jockey. I mostly work on Wielden theropods, and they're basically rubble. <laughs> like, wow, two vertebrae. Oh, my God, it's the best. Two vertebrae found together. They weren't separated. They're found together. Articulated <laughs> specimens. Articulated. Yeah, there's, there's a Wielden theropod, which for me is like, oh, my God, it's the best Wielden specimen ever. And then I'm, I'm not going to talk about it, by the way, but... um. It's in private hands. Very annoying story. But um, I know of a noted um, American theropod worker who works a lot on, you know, Chinese stuff. And he looked at it recently and he was like, meh. <laughs> meh. <laughs> what, a, what a waste of time. Why'd you even dig it up? I didn't dig it up. It was on a boulder on the beach. Why did you even pick it up? Should have left it in the sea. Phil also says he wants to hear about your time in Oz. Well, that's a bit of a long story. <laughs> yes. When I was a little boy in Australia, um, you know, I can't remember anything. It's <laughs> a good story. I have, I have three memories. Yeah. Coming to England, that Bigfoot episode we did, and talking to you right now. Yeah, yeah, that's about, sounds about right. Jessica Lawujek says, uh, if you want to talk about ichthyosaur stuff, you could talk about some stuff, and she mentioned some stuff. I'm not going to talk about it, because, but maybe we'll talk about that stuff one day. I don't know. Tom Parker, talk about non-dinosaur and archosaurs, especially new pseudosuchians. Yep, one day. David Godfrey says Titanicthys. And do you know why he says Titanicthys? Okay. Fish! Uh, fish. Because bloody fish. Um, I think I may as well say that I've, I am, I might have mentioned it already. I'm working on a giant textbook about the whole of vertebrate history. Huge mistake, huge mistake. <laughs> and um, um, I've gotten through so far all those bloody jawless ones, and all those bloody rafin ones, and now I'm in the bloody placoderms. 
And there's a lot of placoderms. And mm. this project is this project is going to kill me. It's going to be the death of me. It really is. So Titanic, this is a placoderm. Placoderms, there's a lot of them. And oh my god, <laughs> wow. Uh, Jeffrey, I don't know how to pronounce your surname. Teeman, Themen, Axolotl mm. extinct in the wild. John Conway says, <laughs> "Don't forget catch for questions." <laughs> Jason Brewer. Says Axolotl News, we should we should cover that. Yeah. Um Jason also says the first time I read this, I thought you were releasing it as an EP on vinyl. When he says this, he means you in three app. App. <laughs> We're gonna be releasing it. Yeah, releasing it. Yeah. Uh and there's many, many other oh yeah, I just uh, Ethan, my good friend Ethan Kosak mentions pedomorphic salamanders, Blake Smith. Well, Americans would say you two are crazy sons of niches. <laughs> I suppose in the UK you've you've seen you seem as the knights who you the knights who say niche. <laughs> what's it actually Blake also says, what's it actually like to identify a new species from a few bones? Well, it makes you the champion of your peers. Friend to everyone. <laughs> I know it's quote a lot of work, but that's a very unsatisfying answer to someone who wants to know but doesn't have the ability to stop their career and train as a paleontologist just to satisfy their curiosity. Can you talk about the actual work that goes into determining that what you have is not just a variant within a species, but a full-blown new example of a new species. Well, Blake, it's all entirely subjective, and you kind of have to twist the evidence to fit your conclusions. Uh, and there's many, many other uh, comments. Thank you very much to everyone. Thank you very much who supports us through their generous donations of time and cash. And um, I, I wanted to say I went to a really cool... Um, the Open University Geological Society did a one-day event in Wool, which is in rural Dorset. There was a lot of water around there. Um, they did a one-day off-flight dinosaur biology thing that I went to last weekend. <laughs> Only three talks. But it was me on the whole sexual selection shenanigan and uh, me talking about my good friends Kevin Paley and Jack Horner and lots of other stuff. Emily Rayfield gave a talk about all the stuff that she's been involved in to do with you know feeding mechanics of dinosaurs feeding behavior dinosaurs and what made it an ace talk not just that the data she discussed which you know if you if you know dinosaur literature you're not this familiar stuff anyway but it was basically the view from the rayfield verse it was a review it was a review of all of her stuff right from the start some of which i wasn't familiar with before so for example why big al the allosaurus was the the subject of the first fea study that she was involved in why Jack Horner's on the authorship of that paper, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, Jack Horner was on the authorship because he like, actually was responsible for originally getting the, spec getting the specimen CT scanned. So, so that, was, that was all cool. And then um, Roger Benson did a talk called Macroevolution, the Fall and Rise of Dinosaurs, which was, <clears throat> now it was, again, it was like covered a lot of material, including uh, how dinosaurs plot within morphospace compared to other archosaurs, all that, you know, that kind of stuff. But also about um, how dinosaurs um, were not really going anywhere in evolutionary terms until a lineage of small-bodied manoraptorans evolved in the Cretaceous, the uh, modern-type birds, crown birds, and he was basically saying how they'd the bomb 
and um, that the Cenozoic should be called Age of Dinosaurs 2, <laughs> and uh, that it's basically dinosaurs were onto a losing streak until they kind of tapped into that whole birdie thing. And uh, <laughs> obviously he said it in, a, in far more erudite terms and, you know, went into the, the science behind it a lot more. But, but he finished with Brian Chew's illustration of, um, you know, the Uteranus running in the snow picture. Mm. And he says, so this picture, we should say, he sort of puts the laser point on the, on the tyrannosaurs. No action here. There's a pterosaur in the picture. He says, they, these animals, they suck. And then put it around. There's two little birds in the background. And he said, but this is where all the action is happening. That was the, that was the end of the talk. So I thought that was quite good. Because um, I have long been an advocate of the idea that, you know, if you're going to talk about dinosaurs, you've got to talk about birds. People that talk about dinosaurs and don't cover birds, duh, what? That's like talking about human history and leaving out everything beyond the Ice Age. I mean, it's... Um, yeah, I, I do think there are some interesting things going on for lots of dinosaurs that aren't going on for birds, you know, the gigantism and that sort of stuff that you might want to talk about. Um, you know, sort of just general biological problems that a lot of dinosaurs have that or had to solve that birds don't because they're generally... Well, none of them are huge. Some of them sure. are large, but yeah, I do. I do think there are some things that. But then, of course, there are heaps and heaps of smaller dinosaurs, which it doesn't apply for, apply to. So they, you know, yeah, oh, yeah, I, but it's, I agree. It's, just generally, yeah, the, yeah. This, the innovation that birds have are crashing through this lower size boundary and getting down to like a few grams and stuff. I mean, that's um, um, I've just published with a bunch of colleagues a paper on the timing of origin of crown birds. Actually, we we use big data sets to show that crown birds probably did originate in the mid-Cretaceous, which um paper by Mike Lee and, and colleagues. So um interesting. Uh, yes. But we won't talk about it now. No, we don't have time. I think we might have to wrap it up. We were going to talk about walking with dinosaurs, but we'll kick that off until the next episode again. And maybe I can watch it. Maybe I can watch Walking with Dinosaurs 3D. My basic take home point about the film is don't watch it. <laughs> Can I watch it with the sound off? <laughs> uh, 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 let's not say any more. Let's not say any more. No, okay. I'm kidding. Watch right. it. It's a great film. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, let's wrap it up. Right. Ooh, one heard. thing I want to do, and I, you know, oh, God, nagging people for money, but we have to do it, Darren. We have to do it. Um, one thing I would say that we've done a whole year of this. It doesn't look like we're going to stop now, does it? So I would say what you are doing now is you are writing in tetzu.com into your address bar. You're going to donate via PayPal. You are clicking it. And now you are entering a small amount in the donation amount. You know, one dollar, one pound, whatever. And then there's a little box right next to it which says make this recurring monthly. Click that. It doesn't have to be very much. If we had a few people giving us £1 a month or $1 a month, that'd, that'd be great, wouldn't it? We'd be made. Yes. Rich as astronauts. Rich as astronauts. <laughs> but I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to say it again. Um, people seem to be very averse to donating small amounts, which I just is, is odd, but it seems to be just a general thing. Um, you know, I, if I see a donation for 79p, I think that's a dollar or whatever, I don't think, geez, what a cheapskate. I think, well, that person's thought about it and actually given us a donation. Unlike 
I would say, hmm, 1,100 of our listeners who haven't, right? So yeah. don't be afraid to give us a little bit of money. We're not going to think you're cheapskates. You're already a thousand times better than most people. And I think so we should, good. yeah, yeah. So I would second all that. And I think we should maybe put this into context by saying we're not weeing this money away down the pub. <laughs> <laughs> and we're not salaried university academics or anything. We don't actually have any money. So <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, that's, absolutely. Yeah, we are trying to make our living doing this sort of thing. So yeah, yeah. if you could. And uh, yeah, don't uh, like a small recurring donation would just be absolutely fantastic. So yes. Yeah, so it's appreciated, and thanks to the people yeah. that have donated. Absolutely, already. I mean, it's a, it's a, as I say, yeah, it's a small pool, but a lot of them have been very generous. So yeah, thanks very much yeah, to these people. Yeah. They know who they yeah. are. Yeah. <clears throat> right. Um, what else do we say? We say where you are. We say where I am. Okay. Well, I we do your tweet. little joke about your Twitter. <laughs> I oh, you've ruined it. I'm not going to do it now. Shy. Oh. I I tweet at. <laughs> Imperial troops of the base. Imperial troops uh, at Tetsu, and uh, there's a Tetsu Facebook page which you should like if you're interested in Tetrapod Zoology. Tetrapod Zoology is a blog currently hosted at Scientific American. There's a new article right there which I posted last night about ichthyosaurs. Um, if you're interested in Tetrapod Zoology or any of the material that we cover in this podcast, then you might want to check out Tetrapod Zoology Book One, available from all digital retailers and the bad ones as well, uh, and blah blah blah. Uh, not available for much longer and. John, myself, and our good friend Memo Kosman have published a couple of books relevant to Tetrapod's Zoology, including All Yesterdays, which is about science and speculation in uh, paleo art. And, oh, yeah, paleo art. Oh, Andrea, 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 what have you done? Oh, dear. That's a subject for another time. And the Cryptozoologicon Volume 1, we're currently working on Volume 2. That about is everything I want to say. What about you? Regularbooks.co is where you go to find where to buy our books with Memo Koshman. Um, yes. Uh, I'm at johnconway.co. You find links to my Twitters and my Fez books. Uh, I blog, or log as I like to call it, which is vaguely rude, <laughs> at log.johnconway.co. <laughs> That's a Tumblr log if you're on Tumblr. Uh, is that it? Is that it? We always forget uh, to say stuff. Oh, the website for the freaking podcast, Darren, is tetsu.com. Yeah, t-shirt. Yeah. T-shirt. Yeah, people can buy our t-shirts. There's a link on tetsu.com of where you can buy our fabulous t-shirts. Oh, look, here I am wearing mine. <laughs> Such a liar. For all our listeners. <laughs> this is a video podcast, Darren. What? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> you lie. I lie. Everyone's a liar here. All right, that's it. Okay, goodbye. Bye. What? what? We don't do that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs>